I love the fact that we could say that in lots of different languages because we're a church that has many different cultural backgrounds, sort of an appetizer for what heaven's going to be like, but there can be confusion when you have different cultural customs, right? And we're going to see that in the scriptures today, but even today it happens. Let me give you an example. Uh, I heard about a dinner gathering where two couples got together, and in the culture of the one couple from America, they expected the evening to end when their guests would say, hey, thank you so much for having this. This was amazing. We're so glad we got to be together. We better let you be going and uh, have a great night. And they'd find their way to the door. But the guests were from a different culture when, which ex- anticipated that you wouldn't ever think of leaving because it would assume that you were ungrateful. So you waited for your host to say, well, it's been great having you here. You've given us more time than we could ever deserve. Thank you, and you are now, you can have the road. So they both just waited. And it went on and on and on till about midnight where finally the hosts broke cultural custom and said, hey, it's been great having you here. I'm not sure if you're as tired as we are. <laughs> We're gonna get our pajamas and uh, you can turn off the lights as you go. No, they didn't say it quite that bluntly, but that's sometimes you have cultural, you gotta understand cultural cues, right? It's important to know the customs. Did you know that in Bulgaria, that nodding your head means no, and shaking your head means yes. So if my wife asked me, Jonathan, do you love me? Yes. Are you gonna leave me? No. (laughs) Confusing, right? That's in Bulgaria, you gotta know cultural customs. And that's true in the passage we're gonna read today. It's one of those sections of scripture that's just really difficult to understand because we aren't familiar always when we pick up this book to know what are the cultural cues like, and there's almost like that Paul Harvey, like now you know the rest of the story. We wish we did to understand what was happening, but it's a culture that's far removed from us. Gordon Fee, a prominent New Testament scholar, writes this, he says, this passage we're gonna read here, 1 Corinthians 11, is full of notorious exegetical difficulties. It's hard to follow Paul's line of thinking. There's uncertainty about the meaning of some absolutely crucial terms. And most of all, there are assumed customs, cultural cues from the first century that are just hard for us to understand. Summary, this is a really hard passage. Even top scholars struggle with what it means. So let's not feel bad if we find it difficult as well. You go, well, what passage are we even reading, Pastor Jonathan? Well, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, and you can either read the Bible app on your phone uh, or uh, your paper Bible. And the goal today, there's some message notes that maybe you'll grab from the table, those of you here at Olmstead Falls or those of you engaging online, if you wanna just uh, go to our website, gracecme.org and you'll see the, the uh, bulletin there as well. I wanna say welcome to all of you uh, who are part of the family at Olmstead Falls. Uh, we love you, grateful that that young adult conference is coming up in just a few weeks at the Olmstead Falls campus and to our brothers at Lorraine Correctional. Uh, a lot of love from the Grace family here as well. 1 Corinthians 11 helps us to understand Paul's addressing issues in the church in that day But he also gives us instruction for the church in our day. And this passage helps us to 
understand, even if you don't find it like deeply inspirational, uh, it, it helps us understand why is Grace Church, why are many churches like Grace led, organized the way that they are? So let's, let's read here and then we'll uh, give a few introductory comments and dig in. First Corinthians 11, we're gonna start with verse three. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ the head of every of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For a woman does not, if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of, in the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? I would just say amen to that. I, yeah. <laughs> maybe has hair at all, you know. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Wow. Lots to figure out there, right? You go, oh my goodness, what is Paul? Do you talk about cultural cues, right? If you drop down to verse 34, I sort of wish we could invite Paul to speak next week. He says there, he goes, and when I come, I will give further instructions. Okay, Paul, we're ready. Our guest speaker next Sunday here at Grace Church, I uh, wish could be the Apostle Paul to explain this a little bit more. Now, just before we look at this passage, because you just read it and you go, wow, like what in the, what does he mean about long hair, short hair, and head coverings, and angels, and, and all the rest, and this person's ahead of that, and the head, and Let's just, we go back to this diagram that we have seen numerous times at Grace, beliefs, convictions, preferences. Let's just start with that outer circle. Preferences are topics like the style of music and worship. You know, some of you like country, some like heavy metal. Might be the choice of Bible translation. By and large, those are preferences. On the middle, we would say are beliefs. Those are the core of our faith, like the inspiration of the scripture is fully trustworthy, or the fact that Jesus is really God, uh, that he rose from the dead, you know, that he's going to come again, that he did all of that to rescue us. Those are our beliefs that we hold on to at the core. We seek broad agreement on those. And in the middle, that middle section are convictions. And that's what we're talking about today. It's not a core belief. Doesn't save us either way if we, you know, however we interpret that. It's not just a preference. Paul has, actually has some things to say about it here. Uh, but they're not core beliefs. They're, they're convictions. Like the way that people think about how you should be baptized. There are churches that I have, you know, respect for leaders who believe that you should be sprinkled. 
Uh, other, at Grace Church, we, in almost every situation, unless a person's maybe, you know, they're in a wheelchair, they're um, in a hospital bed, we might sprinkle them then, but generally we immerse them. Uh, we say we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some denominations, they baptize one, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Other ones that you just go straight down. Some you hold under for, you know, we do it for 10 seconds. Some people do it for 10 minutes. Uh, not really. Uh, but those are convictions. So on this topic right here, you'd say, well, which category does that fall? And this is, I would say, an area of conviction. What we tend to do, though, is we tend to want to push our preferences to convictions and our convictions to beliefs. We have to fight against that. To say at the core are these small set of beliefs. Paul's going to talk about it in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. He says matters of first importance. But, um, but on this one right here, Specifically, when Paul talks about headship, and we would say that's an application for who can serve as an elder in a local church, that we would say uh, there's a conviction on this one. And I think Paul uh, has something to say. It's not a core belief, but it's a conviction where Jesus-loving, Bible-affirming Christians can see things differently. In fact, I have a number of friends who maybe will watch this and you're going to go, I really disagree with Jonathan on this one. And that's okay. Uh, we can come to the scripture and say, if we trust the scriptures, we hold them to be authoritative, to be trustworthy, the actual word from God. Sometimes we differ on whether or not parts of the Bible were meant for a particular culture, which things are for all cultures, and, and we wrestle with that. So let's keep that in perspective, okay? If someone disagrees with you, rather than saying, I condemn you, you know, to say or think they're just a you know, a blustering fool in their interpretation to say, you know, uh, I could see how you could come to that interpretation. This is the interpretation I come to, and we can accept each other as we're on mission. Because we had someone tell Mary and me this past week, they said, you know, they were from a non-believing background and then came to relationship with Christ. And they said, you know what's sad for me when I was outside of the church? When Christians fight over stuff that you just go, wow. In the big picture, like you're getting all riled up about that? And to say, there ought to be a sense of even when we disagree with each other, that we make every effort to keep the, what? Unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're completely humble and gentle. You go, why even talk about it at all? Because Paul talks about it. And because it's the next passage in 1 Corinthians that I've been assigned to deal with. <laughs> And, uh, and I couldn't figure out a way to be on vacation today. Uh, so, but I will tell you that this, the topic woke me up several times this week. Uh, I usually sleep very soundly, but I know that this is a sensitive issue and I have the opportunity to offend a lot of people on both sides. And so already a few people right now, I'm just teasing. Thank you for your affirmation. And, uh, and I'm grateful for Jesus' help. Now, let me just say this as well. If you're like not yet a person who has surrendered your life to Jesus, maybe it's, this is your first Sunday at Grace, and you go, wow. I want to tell you, we only talk about this topic 51 Sundays out of the year. Uh, no, not really. We, this, is a very, this is a conviction issue. We deal with topics when they come up in the Bible. But let me just say this. If you're a person on your way to faith, or you're maybe outside of the church on your way in, the center of the Christian faith is Jesus. Can we say that together? Ready? The center of the Christian faith is Jesus. 
The, the reason that Jesus is at the center is when you encounter the living Jesus, you realize that his grace changes you from the inside out. You come to a personal relationship with Jesus. He, he washes away like the guilt and the shame of your past. You stand in him and you're just as pure and holy as Jesus. That's what the Bible says. It's as if you'd never sinned. And there's something about that that you just go, wow, Jesus, thank you for being the focus and the center of my life. I declare my allegiance to you. And in that relationship, there are going to be some things that he challenges us, right? Let me just say, isn't it, doesn't it just make sense that when you're in a relationship with someone who sees things from an eternal perspective, who has so much more wisdom than you do, that there will be times that his way and will might contradict yours. And you just say, Lord, I don't really understand. I don't know why you would say that, or I don't know why you would allow this in my life. It doesn't make sense to me. If I were God, wouldn't that be the day? Um, I, would, I, would, I would do it a little bit better. We'd say, no, Lord, I surrender. You see things I can't see. You know things I can't know. Both in my life, the experience, circumstances, but also in terms of topics that sometimes are difficult. And so we say we trust him. And even on things in the Bible that we go, this maybe flies in the face of, of culture, or it's difficult, we say, Lord, I, I trust in you. The topic we're looking at today is not the center of our faith. Jesus is the center of our faith. But we still read the scripture and say, okay, Lord, help us. So let, let's dig in here. If you're following along in your notes, um, one of the first topics is the meaning of headship in 1 Corinthians. Maybe the most frequently, well, it is not, not maybe, it is the most frequently mentioned word in this chapter is the word head, right? It's mentioned 13 times. In the original language of the Greek, the word is kephale. Would you say that with me aloud? Kephale. Now you can honestly tell people, yeah, I speak a little bit of Greek. I speak some English, a little bit of Greek. Kephale, kephale means head. Sometimes it's used in the literal sense, meaning this thing right here, your head. That's most often what it means. At other times, kephale is used in a metaphorical sense to mean like when we say this is the head of the organization. Um, and, and there's another, you know, you said it sometimes means like the source of a, of a river, the head of a, a river. But it's this secondary use, the metaphorical one, that has caused, what, what does Paul mean when he says that, that uh, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of, what, what, is, what does he mean by that? For an example of how Kephali is used in a literal way, look at verse six again. He says, if a woman does not cover her Kephali, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head or shaved off, she should cover her kephali, her, her head. Now, in the first century, when this was written, this is where cultural cues come in. You just go, I, I, it's hard for us. We're trying to figure out what do they mean here. And Paul just assumed they all knew what, what was meant. But a covering on your head back in that day had significance that was specific to that culture. Wearing a, a head covering was a sign that you were a person that was under, you were under authority. You were, you were that's what Paul talks about here in verse Tenney mentions that. And there was another significant aspect back in that day. If you were a woman and, and you didn't cover your head in public, it would be, it, it meant you were like a, a sexually available, like you were almost like a prostitute. 
It, was, it had that kind of, and so to cover your, that was a cultural understanding in that day. And so Paul says, when you come, you should come with your, it'd be like today, like uh, telling a, a woman, you, you shouldn't come to church probably in a bikini, right? Or a guy, you don't want to come just, you know, with your Speedo on or whatever. You'd, you'd say, I want you to be, <laughs> I should not have mentioned that. That was not in my notes. That you just, you just, your mind is going to places now, like, yeah. Just erase that last little paragraph right there. But you've probably <laughs> seen folks who think this passage is applicable to all cultures, right? And so if you were to go down about an hour and a half south of here to Amish country and you go to church, uh, men and women will often sit on different sides of the inside in an Amish community, and the women would all come with a head covering. In fact, they wear a head covering for probably most of the week. And some Mennonite churches and brethren churches and others and, and some people here at Grace Church. If, you, if you're here at Grace and sometimes you'll see uh, a woman at Grace who has a little something on top of her head, um, nothing wrong with that at all. They, they would say, you know, I think this passage here was not time bound. I think it's timeless. I think it's for everybody. Others believe, and, and I would, this would be my view, that the custom of a head covering is limited to a particular culture. It's what Paul says in verse six. He says, if it is a disgrace, in other words, if it's a disgrace not to have a covering on your head, uh, the implication is that if it's a disgrace not to wear a head covering, then you should wear one. Like that's what the culture calls for. Um, the corollary of that would be if it's not a disgrace in your culture to go without a head covering, then you don't have to wear one. I see this difference. I play on a softball team. Uh, I think it's fine for a guy to wear a cap on his head while he prays, but you've been, and, and, it's, and, and it's a, some would say, oh, it's a sign of respect. I'm taking off my hat. Is that a time-bound thing or is it timeless? When we pray before the game, the guys tell, or if you're at a ball game, you're, you go to the Guardians, you stand up to the national anthem, what do you do? You take your hat off, right? And so that's a cultural thing. If a guy leaves his hat on, people might be looking around going, I can't believe that guy's showing zero respect for, he might not know the cultural cues, right? Um, and, and so you say, okay, I, I, so in my view, this custom is like foot washing where Jesus washes the defeat of his disciples in John 13. It says, as I've done for you, so you should do for one another. You go, why don't we wash everybody's feet? Because we'd say that was a culture-bound thing. And the principle was that you should serve one another. Be willing to do the lowest of tasks. Likewise, here, and this is the key point. Uh, you'll see this in your notes. While most Christian women no longer practice the specific covering, uh, custom of a head covering, the principle of headship appears to be relevant at, for all times and for all cultures. Why? Why would I say that? Because Paul says it's a principle that goes all the way back to creation. Look at verse eight again. He says, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. He's talking about what two people? Adam and Eve, right? He's saying some in some way, however you understand those opening chapters of Genesis, that God created man or woman from man. It's similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 where he says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. So he's not just saying, well, in our culture, you know, men, you know, in the religious settings tend to lead. He's saying, no, I'm going to take it all the way back to creation. That's something for Adam and Eve, and this was the way it was from the start. So, so he doesn't limit the principle of headship to the first century Mediterranean area. He, he takes it back thousands of years 
to how men and women were created. So, so here's the point. If the physical covering of a headpiece was limited to that culture, the principle of headship is, it seems in the teaching of Paul for all times and all cultures. So what does that mean? Well, he mentions a few relationships here, and, and he might say that the summary statement of the, this first half of this chapter is in verse three. And he says this, he says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Let's just parse that out a second here. That first statement, Christ is the head of every man. It's a declaration of Christ's right to have leadership over the whole human race, right? That there's going to be a day that comes when all humanity comes before him and says, every knee will, what? Bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's our rightful leader. And so we're called to worship him and to obey him. The third statement says the head of Christ is God. That demonstrates Jesus' choice to, to say, I, I follow the leadership of the Father. When you read Jesus in the Gospels, it says, uh, he says, I, I do only what my Father tells me to do. You know, he, he follows. And it helps us to understand, by the way, what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that one group is inferior uh, to another, not at all. Think of, think of the relationship between Jesus and his Father. They're equal in glory, they're equal in power, they're equal in their divinity being God, but Jesus willingly said, I, I'm gonna submit myself to the Father. He said things like, I only do those things that please my Father. And on another occasion, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So when Jesus makes statements like, my Father is greater than I am, uh, he's not saying I'm not equal to the Father. He's say, and not saying I'm, I'm less than the Father. He's, he's simply saying the Father is the head and, and I'm the Son and, and we're, you know, and, and so I, I, I follow his lead. Uh, those two examples that Christ is the head of humanity and, and the head of Christ is the Father help us then to understand the middle statement that says the head of the woman is man. That's a hard one especially for our culture, right? We go, wow. I, I read that and I go, I, I knew Paul was a chauvinist and that's just evidence that the Bible advocates male domination. Not true, not true. Headship does not mean domination. It doesn't mean you, somehow you rule over, you know, that you, that would be applying a worldly and wrong meaning to this passage. God the Father did not dominate Jesus, right? And Jesus does not treat us in some kind of condescending way, right? Th th think of how Jesus is the head of the church. Like, what, is he, what, is, what does he do? It says that he, he didn't come to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He humbles himself. He leads wisely and lovingly. That's what he models in, in headship, and that's what Paul is calling us to. He's, he's calling men to say, I want you to follow the example of Jesus. He says that again in, in Ephesians chapter five, and he says, in, lay your life down, right? Listen to what he says in he, there. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So listen to this. Men who... 
are somehow like dominate or oppress or abuse women are an absolute insult to the one whose name they're called to bear, the name of Jesus Christ. There's no place for that. It's an embarrassment to the one they are called to emulate. So Jesus lays down his life for us. It's a new kind of headship to say, whatever that means in terms of his leadership, it's a servant kind of sacrificial leadership, right? I love the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. Several months ago, I think it was, I was in the lobby and this about five-year-old girl, she She's got a very expressive, wonderful personality, and she looks at me and she goes, Pastor Jonathan, I have a question for you. I said, sure, what is it? I leaned down and I, she goes, are you the boss of Grace Church? <laughs> and I said, you know, I, no, I'm, I'm not the boss. I have people ask me if I own Grace Church. No, I don't own. Grace Church is owned by the people of Grace. I said, no, I'm, I'm not the boss of Grace Church. I said, that would actually be Jesus. The Bible said he's the head or the leader. She goes, I know, but I mean, after him, like, are you the boss? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, actually, there's a team of, of leaders here we call elders, and I'm one of the elders, and, and <laughs> I could tell it wasn't quite, she wanted me to just admit, you are the boss, ultimately. <laughs> and I can cheerfully say that, that Christ is the what? The boss, he's the head, and he's not the kind of boss that you think of, you think, I had a boss, I hated my boss, I don't. No, he's the kind of person you go, I will gladly follow him because I know there's no person who loves me more, cares for me more, forgives me like he forgives, like I, I, will, I owe my life to him, right? He's the leader of our church. And when, yeah, and that uh, deserves a lot of applause. And so when I am gone someday, I, I get, you know, I'm on my bicycle and I get hit by a truck or something happens to Jonathan, Grace Church is going to be okay. I hope I'm here for a while, but Grace Church is, is in good hands because it's in the hands of Jesus. Now, let's talk for a moment about some of the various interpretations of this passage. Uh, my view and the view that Grace Church generally teaches is a version of what some would call uh, complementarian. And you'll see in your notes here that defines kephale as authority, that the metaphor is of a, of a head giving leadership to the rest of the body. You know, you're, it sort of gives the sense of leadership. It's consistent with other scripture texts. texts. And again, it, and in no way it means that, that men are somehow superior. It simply means that God has assigned them the role of serving like Jesus and, uh, and as elders in the local church. And, and so you could say it this way. In the complementarian view, there's a bullet point there. Men and women are equally valued and are all gifted by God for various ministries. But the highest office of leadership in the church, the team of elders, is designated for men. Second view is what has come to be known as egalitarian. This group defines kephale as source, as in the head of the river is the source. So rather than headship having overtones of leadership or authority, the word really more implies the source of where something comes from. And in their, in their view, they could say, well, just as Paul says, the you know, woman came from man, that therefore man is the head or the source of woman, that, uh, that they would say then that uh, egalitarians would say that equality means that eldership is not limited by gender, but on the gifts, expertise, and availability of the individuals. 
Now, I, I wish I could agree with that because it would fit a whole lot better with the prevailing winds of culture, but there are some difficulties, in my estimation, uh, defining head as source. For starts, some would say it's problematic to say that the Father, the Heavenly Father, is the source of Jesus because we believe Jesus was always with the Father. He, he's eternal, no beginning and no ending. They might respond and say, well, he's the source and that he sent Jesus into the world. And, but the second part is that in a study of the word kephale in ancient Greek literature, the most frequently uh, used meaning is, is this, this part of your body, but when it's used in a metaphorical sense, it refers more frequently uh, to a person leading others, like the head of a team. So what do I think Paul is articulating here? He's saying that men and women both have a vital role of ministry in the church and that eldership is assigned to men. Now, again, I, I know that uh, there are lots of views represented by various people here at Grace that uh, you know, maybe you disagree with me. It's certainly not a condition for membership, but if you're wondering why does Grace Church do it the way they do, it would come back to this passage and some others, and, and, and I won't be surprised if I get to heaven someday, and on this topic and other ones, I find out like, wow, I was a little bit off, or maybe I was a lot off. Um, but we have to say, as best we know how, how do we interpret the scriptures uh, for today? And it's okay to to disagree on this. Here's my challenge. Always come back to this book, right? Whatever culture is saying, culture shifts like the winds of a hurricane, right? But the word of the Lord endures for how long? Forever, forever. So always come back to this book. And if you disagree, disagree on the basis of this book, not on the basis of like, I can't believe you'd say that. Didn't you? you look at your notes, let me just offer a few reflections before we close. For starts, let's be clear that all Christians can agree that men and women both reflect the image of God and of high value and worth. That's God's good design. The Bible says numerous times, male and female, he created them. We need each other. And we desperately need the grace of God, all of us. Additionally, all gifted people, men and women, can serve freely and broadly in the context of a church body led by a team of elders. Paul says here that both men and women, they both pray, right? He says they both prophesy, which means you're speaking the word of God. Someone goes, well, what does it mean when it says that women should be silent? We're going to talk about that next week and about some other topics because there was too much talk about one Sunday. And, uh, but we're gonna, and if you have questions, you're like, hey, would you, would you t say more about this? Feel free to shoot me an email. But, um, but on this one, Paul says women pray and they prophesy, right? And he doesn't say they do it just to children and to other women. And, and so uh, one of the elders here at Grace pointed me to John chapter five, verse 19, where Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So the father is the head, but that didn't limit Jesus in any way, right? Not at all. Jesus does everything the father does. And we can say, well, that might be a hint of something that Paul wants us to know here as well. So what we can say on this topic is that as well, that if you're saying, well, John, how do you come up with your view? There's biblical precedent for eldership being limited to men. That was the case in the Old Testament priesthood, the case for the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus, the elders, and the local church. And if you say, well, that was sort of cultural, Jesus was very willing to challenge culture. He did all kinds of things that made people angry. So did the early church. 
So they were very willing to break with cultural tradition if it was according to God's word, but they didn't do that. So our denomination, the Alliance, affirms that eldership is designed for men, but we also allow freedom in how to interpret and apply that. And just to be clear, Paul's talking about the church. This principle does not apply to leadership in the workplace or politics or the military. Women are gifted for leadership in all kinds of parts of culture. So when a guy says, well, I believe the Bible and I hate having a woman boss, I'd go, you're totally misreading this passage. You really are. Paul's talking about the church. He's not talking about, you know, maybe you've read the author, Paul David Tripp. He says this, I'm convinced we have undervalued and underutilized the God-given and essential gifts of women. The Bible does not teach that the primary role for women is in the home. The Bible does not teach that a woman's spirituality comes through her husband. The Bible does not teach that a woman's life will only be complete if she is married. The Bible does not forbid a woman from being highly educated and having a successful career. And the Bible does not prohibit women from leading men in political education and business situations. Those are really important distinctions. And we can say this, women have always been gifted by God for significant ministry. You'll see a group of women there who have had key vital roles all through the Bible. So what can we say in summary? We need each other, right? We really, really need each other. God created us and his design is wonderful. It's beautiful what he's designed for the church. We just go, God, thank you. We don't always understand your ways, but someday we will, and we surrender to you. So let me close with this. I am grateful to be a part of a church that's on mission with Jesus, right? We heard a little bit last week the things that God is doing around the world, and we go, God, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing at Grace Church. We get to be a part of this this family that you're building and you're creating and showing your kindness and compassion to people here in our own communities and around the world. Jesus, help us to be on mission with you. Help us to do it together and help us to be humble and gentle in the process. Are you in? Thank you. Thanks for being a great church family. And uh, let's just ask Jesus to have his way among us. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you today. I thank you for your word, Lord, that it's timeless. Thank you for your spirit that gives us understanding. And Lord, even when we find it hard to go, Lord, what does this mean here? What is this passage really saying? Lord, I pray that we would have a gentleness and a humility. And Lord Jesus, that on those areas of convictions and preferences, we can say, you know what? You're still my sister. You're still my brother in Christ. I love you. Let's follow Jesus together. So Holy Spirit, come, fill us, do everything you desire through your church, and may we be faithful until that day we see you face to face. May it be soon, Jesus, and may there be many other people who are part of that great day of celebration who will trust in you. In your name we pray, amen.